0: That's great. That's Katie's story uh, to Karina. We love being able to tape that trick Karina. We love tricking kids. That's the favorite thing to do. No, we love tricking Karina into that and uh, such a great story of of, uh, the power of invitation. And so uh, if anything from that, just understand you don't know what's at stake. Never underestimate what God might do through you simply uh, extending an invitation to someone else. And uh, we have some cards in your chair. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, this morning. But just in case you're new, I want to introduce myself. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here, and uh, we're glad you're with us. I, I'm, this is kind of the beginning of our spring break, so thank you so much for not going on vacation uh, just yet. We're very happy about that. Last night, I was just happened to be flipping through Facebook and Instagram and uh, saw so many pictures of so many of our, of our partners at beaches with toes and sun and sand and I was very upset. I just want you to know I was very upset. Uh, not because they weren't going to be here, but because I couldn't be there. That was really the, the truth. Um, hey, don't forget you can ask questions. I try to always make sure you know you can ask questions. At any point, you can text those or you can email those in. Uh, but we're going to be talking a lot about this, this series, um, about what it looks like to invest in Invite. And that's, at this, we're closing it today, and we strategically placed uh, this series, uh, to kind of these two weeks before Easter, because we do uh, want you to understand what it looks like to to take the people that you've been investing in and actually extend an invitation to them. Uh, this is the one of the Sundays of the, you know, one of a couple Sundays of the year. Uh, where people might actually receive that invitation and come with you to be a part of Easter uh, service. Now, they, they, might, you know, they might say yes. They might give you a southern yes, which is a no, but at least it'd be nice about it, right? At least it'll be a southern yes. Uh, and so we want to make sure you know some ways you can do that. But uh, we started the series because of our mission and vision as a church to kind of reinforce where our heart is and what we want to see everyone who calls Journey Home be a part of, okay? So let me go back and just help you. This is what Don walked us through last week as he introduced the invest part of this series. Uh, This is our mission to to exist to humbly point everyone to absolute hope. That's the mission of the action behind everything we want to do as a church. The why behind that is our vision, because we are transformed people. We are people who've experienced transformation because of the work of Jesus Christ, And because of that, we want to see our friends' lives. You know, Karina wanted to see Katie experience something she had not experienced yet. And she wanted to see her friend, our friends, experience the absolute hope that is Jesus Christ. And so that's our vision. That's our mission. And we want to, we kind of, this has been the heartbeat of this series, okay? Now, last week, again, Don talked about investing. What does it look like to intentionally invest? And what are we actually investing? I love this. He broke it down into some, some simple things for you to see that we invest our time, trust, and truth. And where we're investing that is in the circle that God has already given us. Okay, we call this the circle of responsibility. When we share this with other churches, it's, it's, it's an easy way to kind of draw out who has God already placed in your life, right, in all of these domains, and all of these areas of your life. We talk about it a Journey, pick five, you know, pick five. Give yourself a top five of who you're praying for, of who you're investing your time in in terms of relationship, and whom you're building trust, right, in terms of building trust in, and who you are sharing, looking for opportunities to share truth in love with. And truth can be a little scary, but guys, we know the truth is what sets us free. And so we have to be praying and looking for opportunities to be able to share truth and share truth in love and Donnie closed last week with basically a really great statement that says, intentionally investing makes inviting easy. And it really does. It makes it, let me just put it this way, it makes it easier, right? It makes it easier when you have already spent the time and built the trust and shared some of the truth about what your journey and what you've experienced. It makes it easier to be able to extend that invitation to have them come along with you or to invite them to church or invite them to, um, to a gathering. And the reason that we believe that... that um, That that's so important is because today I want to talk about the invitation. I want to talk about what it looks like when when we kind of mirror and we're Christ's ambassadors to to share the invitation that he shared. And I think sometimes as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're not all that clear about what we're inviting people to. Sometimes we, we do feel like, well, they just want us to invite people to church. They want us to invite people to a service. We just want them to invite them to a, a religious system of beliefs, you know, to a faith, so to speak, or a belief system. And Jesus, it was just, I'm just letting you know, Jesus, if you read through the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look at Jesus' life, he was all about invitations. Very rarely, and I say this very rarely, very rarely did he debate or argue or try to strong arm people into following him. He simply invited them. Now, yes he commanded and yes he gave commands and yes he gave instruction, but usually that was always within the context of those who were following. And so, when it came to just, you know, just invitations, he was always inviting people to experience what he alone was able to bring them. And regardless of the uh, of the uh, of the encounter, you'll almost always see one or two of these three things in terms of what Jesus was always inviting people into. He always invited people into rest. The Jewish religion was a very works based contract with God. And Jesus said, look, I've, came, I've come to change all that. I've come to reveal the heart behind the father's will for this, for this religion that you've kind of made into this works based thing. And he said, this is in Matthew 11, but he said, those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my burden that I would give you as light. It's nothing compared to what you've been experiencing. He always invited people to follow him, to to follow him before sometimes they even fully believed and knew who he was. He invited them to follow and learn and and, and begin the process of what it looked like to follow Jesus. And and in Mark, he said, you know, you're going to have to take up your cross daily. You know, this is going to be a sacrifice on your part to take up your cross daily to follow me. And he always, always made sure to help them understand that what he was inviting them to do was life, right? Life. John 10.10 John 10 says, uh, the thief, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you would have life and you'd have life to the full. The New Living, New Living Translation actually says to have a rich and satisfying life. These are three things you'll see all the time when Jesus is spending his time inviting people to follow, inviting people to, to experience rest in him, inviting people to experience the life that only he gave. And he was always very clear about what he was asking people to come into. He wasn't asking people to join a church. He wasn't asking people to be a part of a religion. He wasn't asking, me, he was just asking people to follow him, to experience the rest that he was gonna give them, the life that he was giving them. It's a, it was a very clear thing. But I believe that most believers, most Christians today, don't have that kind of clarity as to what it is when you invite people, what it is you're actually inviting people to be a part of and what you're actually inviting them into. And I think sometimes that's that's a part of because of where we live and where we are. That's what I'm going to talk a little bit about today, where we live and where we are. But here's what we know, statistically speaking, is that most believers, most believers have shared through surveys and questionnaires and other things. Most believers have never had the opportunity to share and and engage in a spiritual conversation with someone and invite them to surrender their life and begin a relationship with Jesus. Most believers have never actually experienced that, ever. And if they do, and if they do, what we see happening is that usually it's within the first year. Usually it's within the first year of their conversion or it's within the first year of them engaging back with their faith. So maybe they, were, uh, maybe they came to Christ as a child, they kind of you know, veered away from church, they were kind of de-churched for a while, and then they engaged in church as an adult and came back to faith. Usually, it's within that year. And here's one of the reasons I think that's true, and this is where we're going to kind of park today in terms of this idea of what are we inviting people into and where does it come from, is that our invitations really do come from our current identity and experiences. And this is across the board. This is just when we invite people to anything. It has to do with our current identity and our current experiences because of that. So just take for granted, or take for instance, I was thinking of a few examples uh, this morning in terms of, think about when you are in a healthy relationship. Let's say it's a healthy marriage. It's a healthy dating relationship that you're involved in. And you engage, you see another couple, and you know you, 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 those invitations come pretty quickly. Oh, we should totally get together. You know, we should totally, you should totally come over and have dinner. We should go out and have some fun. That's great. But if you're in a strained marriage, if you're in a, a difficult and, and dysfunctional relationships, those invitations don't happen, do they? You don't have those, those free invitations of, hey, let's get together. Let's, you come over. Why don't you come over? Why don't we go out? The same thing is true of just extended family. Think about your extended family. If you've got a semi-functional, you know, healthy extended family, and Thanksgiving comes up, or Easter comes up, and Christmas comes up, and somebody at work, or your neighbor, or somebody is not doing anything, or they don't have family, it's very, sometimes it's very clear that people will just go, hey, come on, come and, come and be a part of my family, come and join us for Thanksgiving, come and join us for, for Easter egg hunts, come, come over here. But if you've got like just the flat out crazy family, you know, the uncle doesn't wear pants at the table, and the aunt's drunk by 10, you know, and, and, and there's no invitations to that family meeting, Right? There's no invitations because you, your identity and your experience of what, where you come from doesn't align with something you want to invite other people into. Now, I love this phrase. This is an invitation from a psalm, a psalmist in Psalm 34. This is just a phrase I've always loved. And I wanted to talk about this today because this is, this is the heart of what I'm talking about. This is this, the phrase, is taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a psalm all about the goodness of God and what he's done for his people and and how he's provided. But just that invitation alone, taste and see that the Lord is good, that phrase all by itself tells us something about the psalmist. It tells us that he is enjoying an incredibly rich relationship with God that he is close, that he, is, that he has seen some things and how, how God's been moving and what God's doing in his life and other people's life. He's experienced some things, right? He's tasted, he's tasted the goodness of God. He is loved and he is accepted and he is secure in his faith. You're never gonna see that invitation come from a very casual Christian who shows up to church every once in a while who's not growing in their faith. They're very stagnant in their growth. Maybe they're in the middle of a crisis of belief, and instead of drawing closer to God, they're actually veering further away. And they wonder if God loves them. And they wonder if they are still accepted. And there is no security. You're not going to hear them say, you know what? Taste and see that the Lord is good our invitations, what we invite from, where we invite from, has everything to do with our current identity and experiences in our life. So what I want to do today is talk a little bit about sometimes what we align ourselves with, what we identify ourselves with when it comes to our faith in in an account, in a story of, of Jesus from the gospel of John. Now, this is one of those accounts that John, in case you didn't know, John does not write a chronological uh, gospel, not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't, he doesn't write anything chronologically. He writes it all thematically. There are seven major signs that he, that he puts out there. There are seven I am statements that he put out there. He's very focused on the, the witness account. So there's always witnesses to what God and what Jesus was doing. And that's, that's what John actually writes. And he writes at the very end of John why he wrote this letter, why he wanted this account to exist, is that's because he wants people to know who Jesus is. And this account tells us who Jesus is, but this account also, I think, reveals some of the things that, some of the ways we identify with other people and other believers, and sometimes we just miss altogether. Not, we don't miss sometimes who Jesus is, but we miss who we actually identify with in this story. So we're going to go to John 11, okay, just to let you know in your your Bible, John 11. If you want to know, it's just, in terms of time context, it's just slightly before Palm Sunday, okay? So Palm Sunday is today. That's kind of traditionally uh, what we read in Scripture in terms of Palm Sunday. It was the time after the Sabbath when they, you know, they went and got the donkey and they didn't want anybody to know because it was the Sabbath. So they went and got the donkey for Jesus, and then on that Sunday, he actually goes and rides into Jerusalem. And people show up to kind of hail him as the king. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were just, this is the, called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the week, of, the week of Easter, the week of his death and resurrection. So slightly before this time frame is this last big sign that John wants us to know about that's just outside of Jerusalem in a place called Bethany. Let's go and read, start reading there. This is John 11. It says, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now he goes to give, give us context. John says, this is Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. You'll read that in chapter 12. He's just giving you some context. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend, the one whom you love, one of the translations says, is sick. He says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. He tells that to the, to the people that have delivered the message, the, the disciples that are with him. He said, no, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. It says, so although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. We're going back that direction but his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Are you going there again? I love how they didn't say, are we going there again? He said, are you going there again? This is one of the first kind of characters I think we sometimes identify with, which is the risk averse follower, right? It's the risk-averse follower. It's the one that sometimes need to remi- that we need to remind God sometimes of how dangerous life actually is. Right? The risk-averse follower is the one who kind of talks about faith and maybe shares uh, the right verses and the right things about, uh, about God, but they really live their life in such a way that they actually believe that God would never really want to put them in danger. Okay? They live their life in such a way that they avoid the unknown. They live their life really out of fear, and they are very risk-averse. And here's this example of, well, oh, Jesus, you're a wanted man. Like, they tried to stone you last time. Are you, hashtag we, right, going, really going to go back there? And we all know those, those people. We've run into those followers, those risk-averse followers. Maybe that's you, and that's, I'll identify that with every one of these. Maybe that's you this morning. In an area of of your faith that you identify with, he goes on to say, "Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'm going to go and wake him up." And the disciple said, "Well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better, right?" Now, I call this—I call this one the comfortably clueless. (laughs) Okay, this is the comfortably clueless follower, who, quite frankly, you guys all know this person. They do the bare minimum of what's actually needed and required, okay? They're really, really comfortable, so they don't really serve, and they don't really engage, and they're not giving, and they're not in a group, and they're, they're really not kind of fully kind of living out this faith. They just sort of live in the comfort of, of themselves. They're not really rushed or feel any urgency to do a whole lot. And here's Jesus saying, well, he's asleep. And they said, well, sleeping's good, right? That's good medicine, right? Surely he'll get better if he's just asleep. They really kind of miss the point, you know, they, and that's oftentimes the comfortable follower will hear all the messages and they'll read the scripture and they'll hear the sermons and they'll hear the challenge and they'll watch all their friends engaging in their faith and they themselves will miss it completely. Now, Jesus has to get, I love this because he says the word plainly. Jesus had to tell them plainly, look, Lazarus is dead. Now, you don't know that because you don't know because it was sick last time we heard. I'm the son of God. I know he's actually dead. Lazarus is dead, and for his, your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe, come, let's go see him. Come, you comfortable, clueless people, let's go. And then Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go, too and die with Jesus, right? This is my favorite one. This is the fully committed pessimist, Right? This is the follower. This is the, this is the Christian who is doing everything that you should expect them to do. They are engaged in everything. They are giving. They are serving. They're in their groups. They're, they're engaging in long-term and short-term missions and local and global. They are fully engaged. But for whatever reason, when you talk to them, it always seems like the glass is half full. You all know what I'm talking about? Right? Oh, let's go. Let's go serve it. Probably nobody will show up though. Right? Let's, let's go do that. Let's take a risk and go do that thing. We're probably not going to have enough money. Let, let's, go, let's go make this happen. Let's go charge the hill. I bet we won't make it up. Right? The fully engaged, fully committed, they're going to go. But there's just something. They're not trying to be negative. They're just, they're just pessimistic. There's Thomas. Let's go too. Let's, we're all going to die. Right? Right? <laughs> continues on. It says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he told Lazarus, who had already been dead in his grave for four days. Now I'm going to pause here just to help you understand the significance of the story. I'd love to preach all the parts of this, this story, but it's, I can only pick and choose pieces for time. But the significance of four days is this, is that in the Jewish culture and the Jewish custom. Now, this is not going to be found in Scripture. This is going to be found in a Jewish kind of traditional custom that the Pharisees were probably also still teaching, is that they would often believe that the spirit, the human spirit, would linger around the body for three days, but by the fourth day would be gone. And I don't know if many of you know this, I was, a, I was a, in, in mortuary science, I worked for funeral services before I ever was involved in, in full-time ministry, and um, I worked in some areas in the northeast part of North Carolina that were, there was a lot of Orthodox Jews and there were a lot of Orthodox Greek, and they still did the full-on wake, they still did the full thing where somebody sat with the body for three days, and they watched and they wanted to make sure that that person wasn't going to come back because their spirit wasn't going to revive the body. But they believed that the fourth day, the Spirit was gone. So it was significant. It was a significant point that, that, that was being made by John, that Jesus shows up well after that time. It was the fourth day. There's some other significance to the fourth too, but anyway, it's the fourth day. And he goes on to say, When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. And it says that Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I'm putting both the sisters together, but this is a scenario that I think all of us can semi-relate to and identify with, is the quietly discouraged and the vocal disappointed. All right? Now, these are our followers that... that um, You know, they have had expectations of what God was going to do, what Jesus was going to do in their life, of how things were going to work out, and they just didn't work out that way. Things are not working out the way they thought. Prayers have not been answered the way they thought prayers would be answered. And there are those who kind of quickly kind of come to the place of vocal disappointment. They're sharing quite often how disappointed they are in in, in what God has not done, and, and they share those things. Like, if he only would have and sometimes, maybe it's a, position, a transitional thing, but sometimes people get to a place where they're a little bit more quietly discouraged. They're a little more resigned, that not only maybe did God not answer, the, not answer their prayer, not, God didn't do what they expected, but that God doesn't care, that it doesn't really matter. They're so discouraged because they're, they're so far down the path and down the road of moving a little bit away from God. We've all been there. We all know people like this. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's where you, maybe you identify with that. Goes on to say that Jesus told her, this is to Martha, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. I love this part of Martha because Martha then kind of, she goes from vocal disappointed and slides into another thing that I think we identify with sometimes, which is the generically hopeful, right? The generically hopeful where you, where people, you believe all the right things. You have a belief of a very broad sense of things, but it's not very specific and it doesn't help you in the moment, right? The the, the belief of like, well, God loves everyone, right? God loves everyone. He doesn't want people to suffer, You know, God works all things together for good, right? And you know what? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now, all of that is true. Nod your head if you're with me if all of that is true, right? All of that is true. But it doesn't help you in the moment. It doesn't mean, it's not anything personal, right? And here's Martha, just kind of being honest, like, I know, look, yes, Jesus, we're all going to rise one day, right? I know where, I know he's going to rise, I believe in the, in the scripture, I, I know, I've, I've read the Torah, I know that's going to happen. But Jesus was speaking very personally to her. And he goes on to say, no, I am the resurrection. You're talking about a different thing. I'm telling you that I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even, read those two words out loud, even after dying. That should have given her a clue. Right. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me, or, in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha's statement goes back to emphasize what John, why John wrote this account as a witness and said, Yes, Lord, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. She bears witness to that. It says, then she, re- then she returned to Mary, this is Martha, and she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher's here and wants to see you. So Mary, Mary immediately went out to him, okay? And she says the exact same thing. Again, she focalizes this discouragement, disappointment in her life. She returns and Mary arrived and saw Jesus. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up in him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them, where have you put Lazarus? And they told him, and they said, Lord, come and see, Jesus wept. And the people who were standing there nearby, they saw this, and they said, oh, see how much he loved him. See how much Jesus loved Lazarus. But some said, this man healed a blind man. By the way, that was one of the signs earlier on like that John was talking about. This man just healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Couldn't he have kept him from dying? And this brings us to another one I think that we identify with, and I struggle with this one personally because it's really hard to distinguish the skeptical observer as to whether or not they're actually a Christian, as to whether they're actually a believer or not. You can fall into the category of being a skeptical believer having been a Christian and moved to this place or you can just be someone who goes to church and has been around church, you know, for a while. They like the benefits of church, but they've never had a personal transformation. They've never had a personal interaction and encounter with God. The skeptical observers are the ones who just observe everyone else's life of faith. They look at everyone else's life of faith And they basically want to know and have questions about whether or not it's actually authentic. They don't really—they don't trust that God would do has your best interest at heart. And they don't—they don't look and, and believe that God really wants to answer the questions of your heart, let alone the questions of theirs. And every time you make a statement about faith, and every time you make a statement about God, they're there to question it. They're there to be the skeptic but it's never anything personal for them. It's all about you, and it's all about observing your faith. There's, listen, there's far too many skeptical observers in the church, far too many. And again, they could be saved, or they could not be saved. I don't know. That's a hard one for me to, 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 to discern, but the skeptical observer will look at something like this and be like, hmm, couldn't have Jesus done something? Did he really love Lazarus? Continue the story. It says, Jesus was still angry. As he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Women would tell you this, obviously, all right? Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? And they rolled the stone aside, and Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. Now, I love this particular prayer because this is a prayer to God for other people, talking about other people to God. He says, God, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I say it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were bound in grave clothes. His face was wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, go, unwrap him and let him go. I love, just a side note, I love the commentaries of some of this when you read it because uh, they actually, there's actually a comment about the, one of the reasons he says Lazarus come out is because if he just would have said come out, the whole graveyard would have woke up, Right? <laughs> I mean, that was the power of Jesus Christ. So the whole graveyard, he's like, no, no, no. Very specific, Lazarus, talking to you, come out. And it just kind of goes back to some of the context of how they would have bound him and how they would have had him wrapped. And and they said, he's done. Let Let him go. Unwrap him. The resurrection has happened. And I'm telling you, listen, you and I, we can read this story. Maybe we would have heard this story in our life a thousand times. And the story primarily is all about who Jesus is. I don't want you to miss that. It's about who Jesus is. But believe it or not, we see ourselves in this story because of who Jesus is. And yet, for most believers, these are the common characters that we identify with. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you are this morning in terms of of this list. I don't know where you might have been at some point in your life that you can be honest with yourself and identify. No, that's me. I'm the skeptical observer. No, that's me. I'm the comfortable, clueless one. No, that's me. You know, I'm I'm the fully committed pessimist. But John did not write this. He did not deliver this sign. He did not deliver the account for us to see who we are in light of who Jesus is in any of these people, in any of them. Just even though they're common, even though they're something that we can identify, we we all in this room can identify with an element of that. Who is, who is the uncommon character that we rarely identify with? Say it out loud if you know. No, like out loud in your mouth. Say it out loud if you know. Who do we rarely identify with? Lazarus. You get 12 points, whoever said that. Lazarus. Who who in light of who Jesus is and the power that Jesus holds in life, who in this story really represents us? Lazarus. Lazarus represents us. We are Lazarus. That's who we are. Now, you may not have been in a physical tomb. You may not have been in a physical tomb. I understand that. But according to what Scripture says, according to what it looks like for us, even some of the songs we sang this morning and the Scripture that we read, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born dead apart from God. We were born dead to our shame and dead in guilt and dead to the dysfunction and the lies of the enemy. We were were slave, and we've been slave to our sin nature. We've been condemned by our actions. And again, we are going to spend eternity separated from our Heavenly Father. That is who we are. And yet, even though we were still sinners, And even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he rose again to defeat death because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. We are Lazarus. And you will read again. I'm just telling you, the reason I wanted to share it this morning is that if you will read this story a thousand times, I'm telling you, it's not going to be natural for you to say, I'm Lazarus. But that's who you are in light of who Jesus is, in light of if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are Lazarus, and he has called your name, right? Is that all I get? Is there an amen at all in the room? Because I'm preaching way better than you're listening, and I'm just telling you right now. I will preach a full 30 minutes long. Everyone will starve to death in this place. I'm letting you know that right now. Now, I know it's uncomfortable because there is a tension that we cannot escape. That we might be Lazarus in the story, but we don't feel like Lazarus. We might be Lazarus in the story, but how quickly we forget that we are Lazarus. Paul says it this way in the charge to why it is that we invite, why it is that we share and serve, why it is that we are called to be his ambassadors. He says it this way to the church in Corinth. He says, he says what? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ becomes a new person and became a new person. Their old life is gone and their new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task now of reconciling people to him right? Because of this death to life transaction that has happened in our lives, we're now the ones who get to help reconcile people back to God. It continues on to say, for God in Christ was reconciling the word to himself, no longer counting people sin against them. That's the death part, but gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. He gave us the message of resurrection, So that we are now Christ's ambassadors and God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. It means that now, if we remember that we are Lazarus, that that is our story, that's who we are, then we have the opportunity to now speak for Christ and do the same thing that Christ did. We invite invite people to the same thing that Jesus invited people to. Go to that list we invite people to rest. We we invite people, we look at people and say, look, I know you're really busy with your life and I know you're doing everything you can to find purpose and I know you're doing everything you can to hold your life together. I just want you to know that there is someone who wants to give you rest. Your life might not have the direction and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that you believe it should have, but I'm here to tell you that there is a person named Jesus who has invited you to follow him, and if you follow his instructions and you follow his ideals, the promise for you is life, new life, and not just life, guys, a rich and satisfying life we get to be his voice box and invite people to the same thing that he spent his entire ministry, inviting people to himself. Now, this is where the tension comes in. You know Lazarus? Lazarus, I guarantee you, I'm going to take some artistic freedom here, okay? I guarantee you that Lazarus, maybe maybe not right away, but at some point, I guarantee you, he probably stubbed his toe on the coffee table and probably thought of a curse word too. I guarantee you that Lazarus got sick or got the flu or an infection or whatever nasal junk this pollen, 8,000 milligrams of pollen does to us in this area, right? I guarantee you that he pulled a muscle while he was out working in the fields. I guarantee you right? That he grew old and feeble and struggled in life. I guarantee you that just because he was resurrected, it did not exempt him from the pains and the troubles of life. Guess what? Lazarus had to die again. So understand this. Sometimes we don't see ourselves as Lazarus because we too clearly and too quickly recognize our current circumstances, and we identify with our current identity of the fact that I'm disappointed, I'm not comfortable, I'm fearful, I'm struggling, I'm skeptical, and so we land there, and we don't move. And yet, guys, do you think Lazarus... No matter all the trouble that Lazarus probably still had in life, do you think Lazarus ever forgot that he was Lazarus? That he was freaking Lazarus? Like no matter what was going on in his life, he wasn't telling someone else's story. He wasn't telling a story in the early church days when people met at Bethany and they met at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house after Jesus has ascended and gone and he's still telling people about the amazing taste and see how good God really is. He did not forget that I was dead. I smelled me when I woke up. Jesus called my name. And I was rose again, was was raised to life. You think Lazarus ever forgot that he was Lazarus, no matter what issues came his way? No. So yes, we want you to invite people to experience Easter with us at Journey. We want you to, to use the cards and take some with you and share it with your neighborhood and share it with your work friends and share with those in your top five. And we want you to take advantage of the opportunity it is to invite people to something as simple as just come, be a part of of, of a group of followers of Christ who are celebrating who the real Jesus is. But more than anything, I don't want this to be a one-off thing for you. I want you to spend your life investing intentionally in people's lives and inviting them to rest and to follow and to experience the life of Christ. But you are only going to do that if you remember who you are. I'm telling you, you are only going to do it if you remember that in this story, you are Lazarus. He called your name and he gave you new life. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm so thankful that you called my name, that, that although this, that slave nature and the things that, that I was dead in, still just I still struggle with and I still revert to, it's because of you, it's because of your resurrection, it's because of your conquering that death, that I have been given new life in you. God, I pray that you do not let me forget that the person I most identify with in that story is Lazarus. Thank you, Jesus, for raising us into new life with you. God, I pray for everyone listening that's even not here today and those in the room, the both services this morning, that your spirit is at work in us and we are so quick to forget who we are. We are so quick to forget that we have the ability to tell others to taste and see how good you really are. And we so quickly find our identity and our experiences in our disappointments, in our comfort, in our fear, in our pessimism, in our skepticism. We so quickly find ourselves there. God, that's not where you want us to be, and that's not who you've called us to be. So God, by your Spirit, do a work in us as we invite people this week, as we engage our top five, as we engage and invest uh, in the people that are in our lives, God, give us the ability to remember who we are Lazarus in the story, that we are your sons and daughters and ambassadors of a message to bring them back to you, to bring them back to your rest and the life that you've promised. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.